Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, culminators, thank you so much for joining us today. I am going to talk with our friend. She's been here once before. Anyone who's ever been here before and has not taken legal action is considered a friend. And Carol Roth is certainly such a friend. And yeah, you know what? I actually, I, I went back to the house to get the book because I have it. The book is not actually available until July 18th. I have it. And not only do I have it, I'm in it. <laughs> not only am I in it. The index. Carol Roth, you're here to tell us that we're going to own nothing. You, The book comes out July 18th. You can explain in the confines of this podcast why people need to buy the book. But if they don't buy the book, you're going to explain why they should buy the book. No, we need them to buy the book. What's going on, Carol? What's going on with the book? What's going on with the... Did the New Economic Forum really say that? Did they... They didn't really World say Ec that, that, did they? So the World Economic Forum put World out a video. New. World, New World, New World, New Economic. World oh. Economic Forum <laughs> and, <laughs> New and New World Order. I know they, they, right? they have you They have you possessed because they right. don't want you to actually tell their plan. No, they, they did run. They, they put out a video um, several years ago that had the top eight predictions for 2030. And the number one prediction was you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And so when I first saw it, you know, kind of populating on, on social media, I figured it was wrong because so many things in, in social media are, they're out of context. And uh, you've got this organization that is littered with the business and political elite. And I'm like, but there's no way that they're predicting the end of private property by 2030. It did not take very much research to go right to the video and go, oh yeah, okay, this is their global futures councils. This is who, who gave the input. And then doing the research to see that it wasn't actually the first time that they had put out this messaging. It had actually come from an article that uh, had happened a, a few years before the video. There was an interim article about can you rent everything you need in your life, like somehow your life is like going to the library every day or something like that. And it was just so staggering to me as somebody who is an advocate for wealth and seizing the American dream uh, you know, to kind of think about this, because I know that wealth comes from ownership, ownership of assets that at least retain value, but hopefully appreciate in value. So when you have the global elite now talking about you will own nothing and ending private property, it ultimately translates into you not having any wealth creation opportunities. And also, you know, throughout history, the people who haven't owned things have been very unfree and unhappy if they're even alive at, at the end of the day. So I did, didn't quite understand how that prediction all came together. And that would be interesting enough if we were talking about what does the World Economic Forum think about things and what do they want? But as your book details in painstaking, painstaking granularity, 
but is that this prediction is entirely consistent with lots and lots of trends in lots and lots of sectors. It's true. It's, you know, everybody's very focused on this number one prediction. The number two prediction is that the U.S. will no longer be the leading global superpower or something like that. And so, you know, you, you start thinking about this idea of a new world order, a new financial world order, which sounds, you know, at its core, much like the first thing we talked about, very conspiratorial. But when you do, again, very limited research, you'll find that this is very much out in the open. If you type in Joe Biden, New World Order, you'll see that he made a speech in front of the Business Roundtable, which is the CEOs of all the major companies in the United States. And March 21st of 2022, it's on the White House's website where he talks about the fact that the world order shifts every three or four generations. And, you know, we had Britain and the Dutch before we were in the global pole position. And he says, there's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. And I, now, won't, be, I won't be here to have anything to do with it. In fact, I've got nothing even to do with this speech. <laughs> well, that's the crazy part about it, right? Is like, I'm not even sure he knew what he was talking about, but somebody oh. who wrote that speech knew what he was talking about and when I they thought talk, it was i thought it was awesome it thought it was awesome it just it's saying now the quiet part aloud like they're not even hiding it anymore and uh and so they put it out in the open that this this is something that's happening so i mean just think about it ron if you are part of the global elite and you as, know I, as they, I am, of course, as, as you are, in as, every, as we both in, are, in as every, we both are, it's Jews because we control the weather, right? In, so, in, well, all right. So, on the other hand, on the other hand, I, I don't have any money. I know if you meant <laughs> the global elite in the world of finance and wealth control, <laughs> and, and I don't know, you you must have more money than I do. But but even if you don't, you have you have the action figure of Carol <laughs> Roth, which <laughs> no one has ever done, or even a Ron Coleman bobblehead although you know i mean but i'm still relatively young right okay yeah, so so maybe they'll invite you to davos maybe they'll <laughs> invite you into some of these you know elite think tanks but you know you have the global elite who see that the world financial stakes are shifting and, and these aren't things that should be surprising to anybody but we can delve deeper into our financial situation in the u.s if you'd like so if you know things are moving are you going to sit back and just go, well, I hope that works out for me. Or are you going to go, hey, we're rich and powerful, really well connected. We're going to control this to make sure that, you know, we control as many resources as possible, that we control the outcomes and that we do everything we can to make sure that we come out on top. And so that really is the thesis as we talk about these things that you reference, whether it be social credit, central bank digital currencies, what the Fed has been you know, doing to the U.S. dollar, um, ESG, big tech, Wall Street competing with you to buy a home, land and water rights, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it all kind of, in putting all of those things together, it just kept coming back to this prediction of you will own nothing. And that's why I thought it was so important to not only empower people with the knowledge, because you have to know what it is you're fighting against, but then also, obviously, where where you come into the picture in our in our final chapter, giving people solutions on how to fight back. Me, Ron Coleman. <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, what what kind of solutions have I been suggesting? <laughs> well, we talked about um, particularly. I, I I guess you remember as well as Joe Biden does. <laughs> 
discussions. Maybe somebody else. No, but you, 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 you stand a good shot here. It reminded me of something that I actually did cognizant. <laughs> so, you know, one of the areas that we talked about is big tech and big tech becoming, you know, both a de facto government and really you kind of renting your life back to you as a subscription and a, and a service. You know, technology used to democratize, um, you know, the ability for people to gain wealth and have new opportunities. But the current incarnation is one where we have very few companies with very little competition controlling key pieces of infrastructure. You know, mobile and, and it's ironic. I mean, it's a, these are all American companies. So you might think, well, you know, on the on the contrary, what these companies are, are demonstrating is that the U.S. will continue to be dominant if the if social media and big tech companies are are where the future is, and if they're American based companies, and I don't really care where their corporate headquarters is for tax purposes. I mean, that's a separate, you know, separate discussion. But th these are fundamentally American companies, yeah. so America, good, right? This is good for America. Right. It's it's good for those companies, right? So they're the ones that are collecting a fee and a, and a tax on everything. Um, even kind of downstream, you know, when you go as a small business to advertise, you know, you're paying Alphabet, Google's parent company, or Meta, Facebook's parent company, or one of these handful of companies in order to be able to reach your audience. If you have a, an operating system, you have two choices: you're either Android or iOS. That covers 99 plus percent of not only the United States, but the entire world. So there aren't a lot of choices. And, you know, we talked about, um, you know, the need to have some structure over protecting our rights in the, this new digital world. So you had offered up, um, you know, that that even though we're both not generally a fan of legislation and we would love for the tech companies to do the right thing and to step up and to have this tech bill of rights. You know, one of the things I th thought that you said that was most prescient was like, we're going to get it wrong, but we have to start somewhere and have a, a workable you know, document that we can then modify and fix those areas we get wrong. Because if we don't, you know, then we're in a world of hurt. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I, I think it's fair to say that we need to establish that it's appropriate to try and, and, and that it's in our national interest, by which I don't mean necessarily the interest of the state, right. but rather the interest of the American people uh, an interest that is recognized by something probably less than a majority of them right now to treat these businesses the same way virtually every other business, especially influential businesses, are treated, which is to make sure that they don't become more powerful than the government, which purports to speak in our name. Or, or and, let me, let me, and let me give you some data points on that. I mean, think about just the scope of these businesses. Many of them have more users than most of the countries on earth. Facebook has more users than China has has citizens, if you think about that. The market caps of these companies, um, you know, I know it's not an apples to apples comparison, but are larger than the GDP of most of the countries in the entire world. So the the power that they have in terms of their user base, their citizens, and their financial wherewithal, and a very clean balance sheet. They're not, they're not in huge debt like the U.S. government really does make them, in many ways, more powerful than the government. Is. This is a gigantic point, and one that I try to make as often as, as possible. Even libertarians acknowledge that there is um, rivalry among states. 
You know, they, they, they'll, they'll spot you the existence of states reluctantly. <laughs> reluctantly. All right, but fine. There are such a thing as states. And indeed, there are non-libertarian regimes that are hostile to as as libertarian a regime as you want to have here. So how do we protect ourselves from them? So we have we, we have such a thing as a cumulative national interest. Why there's so much difficulty in libertarian circles acknowledging that you don't have to have a flag and a seat in the UN to pose the same threat yeah. to national interests as a state does. And indeed, what you know, what Google can do to affect the world and to affect our world and our lives is far more profound than what Chad or uh, you know, or or, or even Pakistan right. uh, can really do to affect most people's lives in this country. Um, so yes, I that that is you're right. That was a good contribution by me. I deserve to be into the, in the <laughs> Wait, end. We, and there are more that we'll get to, but I want to stay on this point because it's really important. So it's funny that you said a flag at the UN. I would offer that the UN poses as great a threat as some of the individual states that are a part of it and you know, some of these other organizations as well. So I think this is a, a tremendous point that we're we're unpacking here for your audience that, yeah, you don't have to be an individual actor to, to be a concern and a threat. Um, another brilliant Ron Coleman ad that we, we talked about is, you know, I... Speaking of, wait, speaking of ads, we're going to take a break before we talk about Ron Coleman. We're going to look at this cool video uh, that I found before on your on the Amazon page, uh, which is the an ad for your book. Oh, the book trailer. It's amazing. Cause, yes, because why shouldn't everybody get a chance? So let me just say I have to do a screen share. It's still, you know, these are all, this is like your laundry list of things. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole point of it is that they keep saying it's a conspiracy theory, and I'm showing you headlines from like 60 Minutes and The New Yorker and, you know, basic liberal media showing you that, no, it's not a conspiracy theory and letting them tell the story in their own words, which I think is important because a lot of the things that we're talking about, as we say, see here, they conspiracy sound conspiracy. Conspiracy has become yeah. reality. <laughs> But it, it's, you know, it's critical to kind of there are a lot of loony people who are talking about this. And so it's gotten, um, you know, to kind of the ability for them to to push it aside and go, this isn't real. And so that's why I wanted to bring, you know, real thought leaders like yourself and sourcing and, and whatnot to it. So one of the things that we had talked about is just the concept of social credit and, you know, right now we are living in what I would say, you know, is sort of a soft social credit regime versus China's, which has been codified at the state level. But, you know, cancel culture has sort of grown. And, you know, we have seen in recent times that they come after, you know, whether it's your social standing, which is your opportunity to generate, to get opportunities in some cases, your job, which is your your path to create wealth on an ongoing basis, and in some cases, your assets. I mean, think about, you know, if you didn't take the vaccine, then you lose your job, you've got wrong think. They shut down small businesses. Our neighbors to the north in Canada, you know, the, the trucker convoy, they froze assets. You know, these are things that are, are, aren't just kind of theoretical actions and somebody trying to get you kicked off of Twitter, which for some of us actually does impair our financial um, you know, opportunities, but really does come 
for your wealth generation. And one of the things that you had said that we we kind of advise people in terms of their behaviors is if you're working for a big company that you need to be very careful because you are at their whim and that you may want to really establish yourself outside of that network and create your own network that's going to be more insular. So since this is your point, do you want to take it from there? Well, you know, I guess I did make that point. That does sound vaguely familiar. And it does sound like the kind of thing that, I, you know, I mean, what what we've seen is that when people or organizations or groups of people do this, there is if they if they achieve any degree of success, they are delegitimized. There's there's a, a rush to delegitimize them collectively uh, as, you know, people who have to be you know, either destroyed or at least cauterized away from, or, you know, there has to put be- in, some... Put into the underground. You have to go away, sit in the corner. You can't be sit at the big table. And, you know, it's really astonishing to me. I once represented um, Gab. Mm, okay. And Gab was, at the, at the time, I, I you know, they had a Nazi problem, which every- social media space will have if you give it if you give them a chance um but i don't believe the people involved were were lunatics but i believe that the that the process by which gab was painted as radical and friendly to you know the the nastier elements of our culture radicalized Andrew Torba. I really do think so. I mean, because he, you know, either he put on a heck of a good um, uh, performance or he blew a fuse. But that actually plays into, unfortunately, g given that alternate alternate systems and alternate platforms will are unlikely to ever really be impactful because of network effects. Um that plays right into the hands of people to say, look, they're radical because you be, you justify, you justify the, the accusations. But it, it was particularly meaning, meaningful to me when I think it was a point last year in 2022, when the media all decided to start attacking OAN, um, just as they had it successfully attacked Fox when Fox was a conservative voice. Uh, and Fox chose the path of least resistance, which was to become not a conservative voice or a much less conservative voice. Um, this this happens in every single sector. You become delegitimized. And the big problem we have, and this is kind of more my thing than your thing, is that the vast majority of people still attach tremendous significance to equity what i call media equity media brands sure. or or, or uh, not 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 equity um legacy the big, media the brands. big name yeah the big names exactly right I, I, even though they bear no relation whatsoever to what to what they what stood once they what they what stood for but going going to your book and your thesis there's this tremendous reservoir of goodwill in still in government with the, with the government with the federal reserve with all the with the regulators who are here to protect us mm -hmm. not would they let would they all would they all let this happen and what what i'm wondering carol is it's obvious that there that of the two major political parties 
one of them is absolutely on board with everything you're describing. And is it is it what it seems to be? Is it just because they're counting on being on the winning side? And I mean, you think there's any, is there any, any uh, you know, RF Key Jr. aside or maybe not aside? What do you think is going on? I mean, I'm not sure, but to, um, there's not necessarily to absolve Republicans from 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 this well, problem. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I've described the two party system because they are very much a duopoly in and of themselves, and there's not a lot of choice. They're sort of the illusion of choice. And you know, if you look at many of the problems that have been created, they've been created regardless of of who's had the power position in Congress, which is you know the ones who are actually supposedly uh, making the laws. I've described it as the Democrats are the kids that if they're losing the game, they will change the rules. And the Republicans are the kids. They'll tell you that, oh, I'm so great at this game. And then when they you play, they actually suck. And so <laughs> I feel like the Republicans, they are really good at talking and they don't do crap. They have no fortitude. I mean, we can look at this last debt ceiling scenario where there was actually a ton of pressure on the president to really make some reforms that, by the way, are super critical. Our financial position is a, a, a utter like runaway fiscal train. You know, we've got 125% debt to GDP on just the public level. It's completely unsustainable. We have high inflation. The government is working against what the Fed is trying to do. I mean, all these things. So here was an opportunity and they had the cover. They could have just said, hey, the Fed is working really hard on reducing inflation. So we're doing these things to help and we're, we're helping out the Fed. And they could have just called it a democratic win. But they decided not to do that. And the Republicans just caved <laughs> to the whole thing. So they have shown absolutely no fortitude to do the critical things that are necessary. And, and all of the things that I talk about can be fixed or at least delayed pretty substantially. We can reclaim the American dream for people. But like, when was the last time that you, I mean, even amongst the candidates, like nobody's talking about economic issues. Who's talking about small government? Who's talking about, you know, stopping the government from being a predatory lender and, and saddling 18 year olds with like tons of debt so that they can you know, give the money from the young people to college administrators. Like who's holding back the Federal Reserve's power? Like nobody's talking about this. I'm seeing RFK with his shirt off and he can do push-ups. And Ron DeSantis is, you know, doing his culture war thing. And Trump is like, who's like actually caring about these foundational elements that are going to fix the structural issues? Nobody. Like this is a moment where we need to stand up. We need a Reagan type of leader that comes in, is respected on the world stage and saying, we are taking back America's you know, pull position. We're going to be there for the world. We're going to be there for our country. Here are the things we're going to do. And again, we're just getting stupidity from everyone. Just this absolute, utter sideshow nonsense. You mentioned the American dream. So I, I want to take a couple of minutes, believe it or not, we're, we're starting to run out of them, to talk about- the They're classic... taking away our minutes, Ron. They won't even let us have minutes <laughs> oh, anymore. believe me. It's, it's believe grim. Me. It's grim. So the, the icon of the American dream, of course, is the the home, the the, right. the house, the, the single family house that everybody eventually gets to to own and eventually is becoming further and further off or impossible for so many people. Can you, as 
succinctly as possible, and if you can't, then who can? Explain how all these forces, why it is that my children, despite the immense amount of elite education and credentials uh, from which they're, you know, of their parents from which they sprung, and all the opportunities and and all their brains and all their talent and good looks, why it's so hard to imagine that they're going to be able to get uh, to, to own homes anywhere in the foreseeable future. Yeah, there's a reason why the house is the symbol of the American dream, because across households, the house is actually the number one asset in terms of dollar value. So this is how families have historically created wealth. So they're very tied together. We have two things that have happened. One is on the pricing side of houses, and one is on the balance sheet of young people. And so I'm going to kind of go through each of those. So on the the price of houses, we have had this ridiculous government and Fed policy that has completely inflated assets. And coming out of the Great Recession financial crisis, where everybody took too much risk, what happened? The banks got bailed out and almost 5 million Americans lost their home to, to either foreclosures or short sales. So totally different outcome there. And so that meant there were there were too many houses on the market. There was no building. And so now we don't have enough houses on the market. So one factor, right? Too little supply. At the same time, the Federal Reserve decided that they were going to do this ridiculous suppression of interest rates and basically uh, printing all this money and giving very cheap capital opportunities to Wall Street, to the already wealthy wealth connector connected. So they went in and they started basically bidding up the prices of all assets. Stock market got too high. And in 2010, something happened that has never happened before. And this is completely from monetary policy. There were corporations, meaningful institutional investors that got into the single family home business. And so they are now, Wall Street is now competing with you to buy a home at a level that more than one in every five homes that are sold as of the end of last year is sold to a corporation. And these corporations, they're not flipping them and making them better so that you can purchase them. They want to rent you the American dream. <laughs> so they make the money and you will own nothing. And supposedly if you buy into that, it's so convenient and great for you, you're going to be happy, but you're going to have absolutely no leg- legacy wealth. So that's that's the one side. It's it's made the houses really expensive. And oh, by the way, state, local, and federal regulations, federal regulations, state, le- local, they add almost $100,000 to the average price of the average new home that's built in this country. And obviously we know there are all these um, you know, not in my backyard kinds of laws that just make it very hard to build a house. So under supply. I, I, I mean, I, I think also that, you know, when we think of the, the supply of housing, the geo, the geometry, the geometry, the geography, geography, yes, <laughs> maybe, maybe, the geography issue and the, the, the changes that globalism have at least accelerated. I don't, I'm not ready to say that they caused in the mid in middle America. You can, but you can get a house. You can get a house in, you know, suburban uh, Cleveland. Cleveland. I was going to go there too. <laughs> but, you, but but you're unlikely yes. to get a job. Right. So yes. so it's a mismatch. When we talk about the supply of housing, 
we're talking about housing in a place where you want to live because every, you know which is the major you know the, the major cities and their yeah. suburbs right. so you know that's a that's a you know a, that's a gigantic factor um and part of that is a result of of the outsourcing of industrial capacity although again as an economics guy you know it's it was never you know competitive advantage uh, was what not competitive advantage um um, comparative low, low, advantage. Yeah, low, yeah, low, lowest, lowest cost producer. <laughs> I mean, so that's always. I mean, you know, no one. It, we can't be. We can't pretend that it's 1950 and and we're going to create all our own things today. The world is a more complicated place, and you're not saying otherwise. But these, all the factors that you just mentioned, make it immensely worse. It's immensely less yeah. practical and realistic to think that anybody. So, so let's talk about the other piece of this, and I agree with you. Um, you know, there there are obviously some other mismatch issues, and and many government policies have have exacerbated these mismatch issues. But the other side is that the government has helped destroy the personal balance sheets of young people, and you talked about it. They got in and nationalized most of student lending, and at this point, they have increased exponentially the cost of college by making all of this capital available with no bankruptcy option, no underwriting, and the colleges having no skin in the game. So the cost of college has exploded exponentially uh, times both the GDP as well as wage growth. So kids are paying more, but their educations aren't getting them enough to be able to make up uh, and to be able to pay that down. So they're graduating and they're actually on an inflation adjusted basis. Their incomes are higher, but they have so much debt that they need to pay down that it really more than cancels out that increase. So that means if you have that debt load that you're not able to make investments and you have to delay the purchases of, you know, things like homes in some cases, you know, with rents going up as well from that first discussion we had, um, you know, they can't even afford to rent and now they're living with their parents again. I just did a piece for the blaze on that. So you've got sort of this, this horrible scenario with college being a financial scam and government being a predatory lender, destroying balance sheets. And then at the same time that even if they could afford it, now what they're going to purchase has become even more expensive. And it is, it's stealing that American dream. And it's within the government's purview, right? We all know that you know, if, if they wanted more people to own homes, that they would be doing the kinds of things to create those incentives and remove those barriers. But they're the ones who are intentionally creating those barriers because you owning nothing means that you are more dependent on them and that secures their power at this very sort of weird time where we're at the end of the financial empire. They've got a ton of debt and there are only so many things that they can do in order to keep themselves in power. So what, I mean, but what's an example of something that the federal government is doing or has done that corroborates what you just said? In other words, not what it hasn't done. I understand that there, the government in general is dysfunctional, but well, they they could get out of student lending. They could make it an underwritten process. They could allow for personal bankruptcy. They could require the colleges to own a piece of it if they want to keep their tax exempt status, so on and so forth, and completely change the scenario for young people. So we're not talking about you know gifting them debt. We're talking about forcing the colleges to actually participate 
in a way that makes sense and not just giving them free reign to continue to increase the prices. On the I mean, housing side, it's all about their regulations, right? As I said, $100,000 in regulations going into the price of a new home versus several years ago when it was $60,000. So maybe some of them are important. We're not saying, you know, we want to have electricity and we don't want to have wires that, you know, burn the house down or whatever. But I can guarantee you that you and I could go in there and in a common sense manner, probably, you know, get rid of at least half, if not more of that. There's that. And I think also, you, you know, as part of that chain of pressure, uh, cost pressure is the college system itself and the, the, the way tax, the, the way uh, in, endowment money. And I mean, the, the call these nonprofits is, you know, at least in terms of the, the elite schools with, with, that have multi-billion dollar, uh, multi-tens of billions of dollars in, you know, in, in endowment assets, and administrators who are paid seven figures of money, they're indistinguishable from any other for-profit corporation, except that there are no shareholders, which is which makes them immensely worse. Yeah, I mean, I actually call Harvard a hedge fund that happens to have a university attached to it. And somebody made the point, they said, well, hedge funds pay taxes. So right. it's a very specially positioned hedge fund, a ta you know, a tax favored hedge fund. And by the way, You've got Harvard, who has gone in and at least as of several years ago, went into California and bought up a bunch of land for water rights. So now you've got those same people who are you know, getting you in this direction. Now they're getting into the financialization of water. So, again, this all ties into this bigger thesis of you will own nothing. Why is just so critical to go into the information? In order to understand this. You got to buy the book, folks. I was joking in the beginning. You're not going to get it from 45 minutes with Ron Coleman. Um, you know, even even when my guest is Carol Roth, who has been thinking hard about this stuff for a long time. And uh, what what do we do? We know that there are policies. What is what is the average as we close the average individual, the average person besides buying your book and understanding the, the problem better? Well, about buying a hard copy because you need to own something, you need to shift your behavior. And as we know, they're starting to change the text of books. So if you want to know what it actually says now and in the future or the hard copy, but there are behavioral changes and financial changes that kind of go along with each of the themes that we're talking about. Ron, some of your um, advice, you know, is in that behavioral arena, things that we need to be doing in terms of, um, you know, changing our, our, our person, where we're getting our money from and then thinking about, you know, fortifying our own um, lines of businesses, but also things like, you know, we, we didn't really get into central bank digital currencies, but imagine if, you know, there a CBDC comes into play and there's all kinds of, you know, information and, and sources that says it's coming. And the Fed now has the ability to control your money at the sort of dollar by dollar level, whether you've eaten too many burgers, you said something bad on Facebook, or they're just trying to control inflation, just kill access. So have you started thinking about investing in some hard metals or doing other things in your community where you can barter and you know your position so that if you are cut off from being able to use your money in the way that you have historically what is it that you're going to do, whether that's for a period of time or for a longer period? You're prepper, of time. Carol. You're a prepper. I, you know, it's really weird because I've I've always um, kind of thought I wasn't going to be a prepper, but I've definitely 
prepper, like prepared, not really a prepper, but just prepared. It's like the Boy Scouts, right? Always be prepared. Nothing, nothing bad has come from preparation. Um, and again, it, it, it's thinking about each of these individual scenarios and making sure that whether it happens in 12 months or 12 years or 50 years, because Ron, we never know duration. That's one of the things that from finance we learn. We never know duration. There are a lot of variables that can shift. But when it does happen that you're not just all of a sudden hearing this for the first time and going, <gasps> what do I do? That you've actually thought through this and you started taking some steps because by the time it actually is a reality, like you're not going to have the ability to then start making these plans. It's kind of like when your house is on fire. You want to have that insurance policy in place. You want to know your escape route. You don't want to start thinking about that, you know, as you see the flames. And in fact, I mean, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, dear listener, well, listen, there are so many flaws and so many cracks in, in you know, in, in the in the foundation that this whole big system is probably going to unravel anyway. And therefore, they're not going to be able to implement their evil plans. But it's the exact opposite. <laughs> I, COVID taught us that in times of emergency, perceived or real or somewhere in between, that's when the state maximizes its rationalization with the help of its fellow travelers, so to speak, its dupes in the media and politics and the judiciary. We say, no, no, this is an emergency. It's different. The Constitution wasn't meant to apply to an emergency, when in fact, that's exactly what the Constitution is for. Bingo. Carol, fantastic. We could, we we really could, we should, you know what, we should just do a, like a four hour live stream on this or something. I, seriously, <laughs> oh, think about it. We should do, because there's, not only are there an immense amount of, of topics in this book, but no one is better qualified to discuss them with you than, than I am. All right. Okay. No one, no one is prepared to spend four hours just <laughs> buy the book, buy it in hard copy, buy the hardcover too, by the way, Go, return with a V. Okay. Hard copy. I'm in it. I'm in it. Multiple wow. times, multiple times and in the index. <laughs> Carol, thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, I mean thank it. you. Thanks so again for sharing your knowledge so generously. It's much oh, appreciated gosh. and you're going to help lots of people. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day. Hey.